Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. One more thing before we get the podcast started today. On today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you are going to hear an update uh, regarding the health of Bob DeWay of Twin City Fellowship. And I want to assure you before we go into the program today that all of the information that you're going to hear, including uh, information that was shared during private conversations with Bob uh, at, on the, during the last week of October, that Bob DeWay has given permission to me to share with you uh, the listener of Fighting for the Faith. So none of the information that you're going to hear today regarding Bob DeWay is privileged information, and uh, Bob has given his uh, his approval for me to share this information with you. I needed to let you all know that before we got the podcast started so that there was no question in your mind as to whether or not I was sharing private information with you. I'm not sharing private information with you. Bob has given me permission to share the information that I'm sharing with you on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So with that, let's dive into the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 1st, 2010. Oh, it feels weird being back in the saddle again, gotta tell ya. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. It's like, I somehow vaguely remember... Isn't this what I used to... Yeah, I still do this for a living, isn't it? Hmm. Creeping decrepitude. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said. And as a result of it, well, we've got to do some cleanup work. Got to do some cleanup work. You know, I... I, um, I First day back in in a little while. Uh, I we uh, I did two programs. I did a Monday and a Tuesday program last week. They haven't been posted yet, and the reason why is because I'm waiting on on uh, DVD and audio files uh, that are being sent on optical drives to me uh, from the uh, New the church there in Newburgh, uh, Oregon. Uh, from the debate. So as a result of it, uh, I, that way I don't have to continue to clean things up in order to make them available to you and comment on them. So if you're uh, hoping for some uh, for that director's edition, you know, where I where I go back and kind of review and take apart uh, Doug Paget's stuff, you're going to need to wait because I don't have those files yet and we've had problems uh, getting them to me uh, via the internet. It, it's kind of a long story. So 
today we're not going to talk about the hell debate, and uh, you'll just have to wait just a smidge longer for me to post uh, the uh, relevant podcasts uh, you know, that where we talked about the uh, hell debate. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's coming. It's coming. I uh, trust me. It's it's coming, and it'll all be good. In the meantime. <sighs> So, you know, I did two programs last week. They haven't been posted yet because of audio problems. Um, and then Wednesday morning, I uh, I uh, packed up and headed out to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, spent uh, Wednesday evening, Thursday, uh, Thursday all day, and then came home uh, early Friday morning. I left early Friday morning to come home uh, on, uh, on Friday and then took the weekend off, something I haven't been able to do in a long time. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> and you're going, uh, well, Chris, what's what's uh, what was the trip to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota about? Well, I'm gl- I'm glad you asked. Um, for those of you who haven't heard the news, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that Bob DeWay was uh, struggling with health issues, and I didn't know the nature of those health issues until after uh, my debate with Doug Paget. And uh, when I got back, um, when I got back to Indiana and finally was able to get into my Email. Um, I came across an email from uh, uh, Bob DeWay's daughter uh, that, and uh, she um, let us know what was happening with her father, uh, Bob DeWay, and that, uh, and that it turns out that uh, his health problems. Uh, well, they revealed uh, a, a secret that Bob had been keeping from everybody, and that was is that he was addicted to alcohol. And uh, he had been uh, diagnosed with alcoholic hepatitis, and uh, and had done some serious damage to his liver, and uh, and so what had happened is is that all of this came out because his well his body decided that you're either going to have to do something about it or you're going to die, and uh, and so uh, he. Um, yeah, that's what came out. And when I got the email from uh, Jessica, uh, Bob DeWay's daughter, I mean, it just broke my heart. And I knew immediately that I needed to make some plans to get out there to see my good friend Bob DeWay. And uh, with the hopes of being able to uh, preach the gospel to him, to uh, be able to uh, hear his uh, confession of his sins and to tell them, tell him that Jesus Christ died for those sins. Give him absolution, if you know what I mean. And uh, so... Um, and uh, you know, I guess the way this all kind of happened is is that uh, when I contacted uh, Diane Dewey uh, shortly after I got the email, and, and uh, with the, that was actually I want to thank uh, uh, Christine Pack of the Solar Sisters. She was able to help me uh, coordinate, uh, get a hold of Diane Dewey. I didn't have her phone number at that time, and I was able to get a hold of Diane Dewey with the help of Christine Pack and. Uh, and I, I'm, sounds like I'm rambling here at a moment. At the moment, and and I guess in some way I am. But uh, what happened is, is when I talked with Diane, uh, Bob was still at the, uh, on the ta- at the tail end of detox. Uh, his addiction to uh, alcohol was uh, very severe, and uh, over the years he had, um, you know, the amount of alcohol he needed in order to function had increased. His body had become dependent upon uh, alcohol. And uh, he was at the tail, you know, he's still kind of at the tail end of detox. And um, he wasn't taking any visitors. And uh, what had happened is, is that, you know, he, I think there was a, a level of shame and remorse uh, for his sin uh, coming to light and, and concern that he had damaged the, uh, the name of Christ in, in the process. 
And uh, so uh, when I talked with Diane, he still wasn't taking visitors, but uh, after I was able to talk with him on the phone. And uh, and after talking with him on the phone, I had, you know I had asked Diane if if I can come and visit him, and uh, and so she talked with Bob, and Bob uh, allowed me to really be one of the first visitors, aside from his family members, uh, to come and and visit him. And so on Mon- on Wednesday morning, I uh, got in the Pirate Christian Radio FJ, and I made the made the drive up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, 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 first thing I, I did when I got into Minneapolis, I went straight to the hospital that he was uh, staying at, and uh, and I spent two hours uh, with Bob on on Wednesday night, and um, it, it was uh, it was sad and terrible to see my friend in the condition that he was in, but it was even more sad to see Bob. Um, Isolated, you know. When I got there, there was a big sign on his door that said "No visitors," and and of course, I, you know, I had I was the one exception, and so um, I was. And you know, when I got there, Diane, you know, she still hadn't really been home much to get some rest, and so I was able to give her a break so that she was able to go home and get a decent night's sleep. And um, and so I spent two hours with Bob, and he told me of uh of his addiction it told me of his alcoholic condition what, what and how it started and how it built and how it came to its head and uh, i want you all to know that uh that uh, i i asked bob for permission to discuss this on the air uh and you know cuz i i you know i i didn't know how he would think about that and i didn't want to be uh passing along information that might be privileged information so bob gave me permission to discuss this and um, and I can I can tell you this in, in meeting with Bob for two hours. I mean, it, this the 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 sadness, the regret, the remorse, the contrition. It was all there, and uh, and and so you know I spent quite a bit of time not just hearing what he, you know how what had happened to him, but also preaching the gospel to him and telling him of the good news that uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross even for those sins, even for the sins of a pastor who was uh, living a double life, a a pastor who was uh, ensnared by an 18-year-long addiction to alcohol. Uh, Even, you know, and so, you know, that was really why I went there because one of the things I've seen over the years, uh, you know, growing up, uh, well, uh, you know, spending my junior high, high school years, and then all the way forward in church is I've seen that some Christians, and this is, and this, I'm, yeah, I got to be careful because this is not how all Christians behave. I've seen that some Christians they really, really have this bad habit of shooting their wounded, and um, there's just no way that I was going to stand by and you know, and uh, you know, and allow. My good friend and uh, and a man who's been a faithful preacher of the gospel and God's word for many years, uh, to to feel like he was alone and isolated, and that he had done something that you know puts him outside of the Christian faith, or or that the right Christian response to somebody who stumbled this way is to uh, kick him to the curb or throw them under the bus. And uh, not that not that the folks there at uh, Twin City Fellowship were doing that. No, that, that's not what was happening at all. In fact, I I think the isolation that he was going through at first was self-imposed, and uh, and so um, you know I went there to preach the good news, to hold my friend's hands, to look him in the eye, 
and tell him the good news that Christ died even for these sins. To tell him of the shed blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, even for an 18-year-long addiction to alcohol. And I think that's what he needed. And I, and, um, and so that's why I went to uh, Minneapolis. I and mean, Bob basically told me that his addiction began when he was in seminary. And, uh, you know, it dates all the way back there. He's, he's got a very active mind and struggled with insomnia. And uh, he decided that he would self-medicate to solve his insomnia problem uh, uh, using alcohol. And, uh, and then he got hooked and, uh, he basically explained to me the many years that he felt remorse and, and, and trapped by his sin and, uh, felt, felt at a loss to be able to seek the help that he knew that he needed. Um, and, and I think that's one of the, that's kind of one of the byproducts of, uh, of American Christianity at the moment is, is that I think that. A lot of American Christianity has lost that sense of confessing our sins one to another and hearing the uh, the absolution, hearing the forgiveness of sins, and uh, specifically for uh, whatever sins that you're individually struggling with. And as a result of it, I think there's a lot of Christians out there. Even you, you, know, you may be listening to this, and this might be resonating with you for the very reason that you might be struggling with a sin that you feel has overcome you, that you feel enslaved to, that you feel entrapped to. And you dare not tell anybody uh, of the sin that you're struggling with for fear of uh, being ostracized, for fear of people pointing their fingers at you and, and telling you that you're not a Christian, for fear of all the shame that would come as a result of it. But uh, what I've learned over the years is that sin really thrives in dark secret. When, when uh, you're isolated, when your sin is something that only you know about, when you self-medicate on the gospel exclusively and, uh, and cannot bring yourself to openly confess the sin that, you are, uh, that, that you're wrestling with, that many times that's a formula for despair and even worse, um, it, 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 basically that sin worsening. But the solution is the light. The solution is... Having a friend, a fellow brother or sister or your pastor, specifically I would even argue for your pastor if you have a pastor, not some showman, but a pastor, to confess your sin, call it what it is, admit your struggle, let your contrition shine, so to speak, let your shame and and terror for what you've done really come out because as you confess your sin then your christian brother or your pastor can then tell you that jesus died even for that sin that jesus's blood covers even that sin that even you as wretched as you are and as poorly as you've struggled against that sin that Jesus still has you. And so that's what I, you know, that's that's the reason I went to Minneapolis to spend time with Bob DeWay and preach the gospel to him and for him and tell him of what an amazing savior he has. And uh and so that that's why I was there. 
And, you know, some people might think, well, that's kind of crazy that you would, you know, take time off to, you know, to go do that. But see, the thing is, I, I, I listen, I, for me, the gospel is not an academic exercise. This isn't about academic theology. And, and the reality is there's a place for that. I mean, this, schools need to be teaching theology. They do. But our theology is lived out. And because I believe the gospel, there are certain actions that I must take when those I know and love are struggling or are hurting and um, and so because I believe the gospel that I believe of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and him on the cross, I can't sit on my hands and just say, be well, I hope everything works out for you. You know, I wasn't going to send him a card. Just Bob, just want to let you know that, you know, you're in my thoughts and prayers that we, we got you covered in prayer here, my friend. No, if you're my friend, and I really truly know you personally, and we talk, and you are in dire need, I, 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 I don't think I could live if I didn't take action on your behalf. And it's not because I'm so great. It's because I have such a great Savior. It's not because I'm so sanctified, because I'm really not. It's because I have such a great Redeemer who's given me this great news that needs to be preached. See, the, the, a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, he puts it this way, and I, and I think he's on to something here. He says, Chris, you know, the problem that people have is not, their, is not the sin problem. He says the problem is unbelief. He says because Jesus has taken care of the sin problem, all of our sin all of our rebellion against God, all of our wretchedness is taken care of by Christ on the cross. Jesus has solved the sin problem. And so when we, look, when we read passages in Scripture that talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, that, the, when, that Jesus, when he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and unbelief. And so over and again, the thing we wrestle with, even as Christians, is that temptation to unbelief. And as sin grows in our lives and, and entraps us and we become enslaved to it, there's times when people become enslaved to a besetting sin. The thing that it gnaws away at is our belief in our faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And that's why sin is so dangerous, because at times it will, it, it's, it, it might bring a person to the point of despair where they say, I don't think Jesus can forgive me. I've done too much evil. There's no hope for me. To which I would say, Peshaw, no way. Your sin is not greater than our crucified and risen Savior. So, anyway, so th- that that's where I was last week. I, I spent some some time in Minneapolis, and you know, I, I had some. Op- I had the opportunity to meet with. Uh, some of the members of the Board of Elders uh, for Twin City Fellowship to meet with uh, Pastor Carl, who's uh, one of the other two pastors there at Twin City Fellowship, and and make an impassioned plea that uh, that Bob's uh, discipline be handled in light of both law and gospel, and that the that the gospel would have the the final say. And the, the nice thing is is that it was a great conversation. 
Um, I, I did have an opportunity to talk to several members of Twin City Fellowship, and they, and they were able to kind of clue me in on, on, you know, as this story had gotten out, you know, what was the reaction of some of the people there at Twin City Fellowship. And I was very pleased to hear that uh, there, there's a whole group, a solid core group of people there at Twin City Fellowship who are who from the very beginning knew that the thing that needs to be applied here is the gospel. And the way they knew that is because Bob DeWay faithfully preached the gospel to them for many, many, many years. And so, and then there were some people, uh, you know, that uh, were asking the question, well, if Bob had died in rehab, or not in rehab, but during detox, you know, would he have been in heaven? And that shows that there's still some room for some preaching of the gospel because some people don't quite get it all the way. So the good news is this, Bob DeWay is uh, is a forgiven sinner, just like me and just like you. And he hasn't walked away from the Christian faith. He hasn't been, uh, he, he's he, he's a Christian. He he's, he's a forgiven sinner, just like the rest of us. And uh, he still has a long way to go uh, in in getting control of his uh, his sin and his addiction in this case. And uh, and that he's in good hands, and the folks there at Twin City Fellowship are really in need of your prayers as they they move forward in the days to come. I have no idea what's going whether or not Bob DeWay will ever be a pastor again. I don't know what's going to happen with his critical issues commentary, and um, that's kind of like beside the point at this point. And the reason it's beside the point is because you know, as I told Bob, I said Bob. I really firmly believe that what has happened to you was the discipline of God. And Scripture tells us that our Heavenly Father disciplines us. And that if, he, if we're not disciplined, I mean, God it kind of shows that God doesn't love us. So the fact that God would discipline us is, as a father disciplines his child is it's a good thing. It's for our benefit. It's for our behalf. And I said that... Um, you know, the, the, I think a correct and biblical way to look at this is that God is disciplining Bob DeWay for Bob's benefit, because ultimately the thing that that is the great news in all of this is that Bob DeWay isn't going to go to his grave living this double life. He's not going to go to his grave enslaved to uh, the uh, the sin of alcoholism, to the sin of drunkenness. And that God has acted powerfully on his behalf to set him free, not just from the uh, from the eternal guilt of it, but to set him free from it so that that's not a consistent and daily part of his life anymore. No longer does he need to self-medicate on, on alcohol in order to function every day. You know, I, I, what he told me is, is that it had gotten so bad that he had to take a drink every four hours or he would get the shakes. And, you know, you, you hear a story like that and it just breaks your heart. But the good news is, is that Christ has acted powerfully on Bob DeWay's behalf to set him free from that. And so keep Bob DeWay, Twin City Fellowship, Diane DeWay uh, in your prayers. And uh, the last I heard, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm actually going to try to get an update later today from uh, Diane DeWay as to how this is going, is that uh, Bob is scheduled to be uh, put into an inpatient rehab program that uh, could could take up to 28 days. I, I don't know. I think that's like 28 days is like he's going to be, you know, checked in and to be take, take care of that. And so, I mean, that's going to be a tough time. 
uh, for, you know, for Bob. It's going to be a tough time for, you know, his family and other things. So uh, keep Bob away in your prayers. Pray that, uh, that God's will would be done as he walks through continued repentance and the forgiveness of his sins and, uh, and wrestles with uh, the, the gravity and the magnitude of his sin and that it be done in a way that ultimately what happens is, is that Christ is glorified through it. Christ is, not Bob DeWay, not me, not you, not Twin City Fellowship, not Pastor Carl, not the elders, but that Christ would be glorified. You know, I, I look back and, uh, you know, we've, you know, over the years we've had several stories of pastors, prominent pastors who have, who have fallen. And, um, you know, I, I think of the Ted Haggard debacle. You know, Ted Haggard now. Uh, he's got a new church, and uh, in yeah, and this despite the fact that people who were in charge of his restoration or whatever are saying that he's not restored. And I, I think the ultimate problem with the way the Ted Haggard discipline and, quote, restoration went down is that the person who really is getting the glory is Ted Haggard, not Jesus Christ. Ted Haggard has a new church. Ted Haggard is doing this. Ted Haggard does that. Isn't it great that Ted Haggard... No. If Bob DeWay is ever restored to ministry, we will know that it was done correctly if Christ Jesus is glorified. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that's front and center. Yeah, repentance and the forgiveness of sins because it's truly God who forgives sins. It's truly this gospel that we have to proclaim. And it gets to be proclaimed not only to unbelievers, but every Christian, including Christians who struggle with double lives, addictive sins, besetting sins that are thriving in darkness, who are afraid to confess their sins and get help. Ultimately, we need to be preaching the gospel to our fellow brothers and sisters and create that safe place in the church where sins can be confessed, but more importantly, that the sinner, even the Christian sinner, might hear that Jesus died for those sins. When that happens, then only Christ gets the glory not the penitent sinner, not even the person who reaches out to the penitent sinner, but only Christ. Christ and Christ and him alone gets the glory. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, I'm going to take care of a couple of uh, items I want to talk about on today's program. And then in the second hour, I've got two good sermons that I want to review uh, in light of the fact that uh, yesterday was... uh, well, we Lutherans celebrate it as Reformation Day. I, I don't know. Do, do uh, any all outside of the uh, outside of the Lutheran circles? Did you even did Reformation Day get a, a mention? And as to its importance, well, anyway, so we'll, we'll do that. So if uh, you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I could know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and... Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, sin thrives in secret. The, what's the solution? It's the light, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and you can partner with us. And the way you do that is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, uh, I'm sitting here looking at my uh, list of things that I could potentially talk about today. And I, I got to tell you, the, the the stuff that I want to talk about on the program, uh, the, li- the the total list, it's going to take me the whole week to get through. I mean, that's I, not only am I behind, but there's certain things that I think need to be addressed. And uh, especially in light of the research that uh, I've been doing and, and other friends have been doing and bringing to my attention. Uh, but I wanted to make sure on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith – Considering what you know, what I've um, what I've seen and experienced, and in light of the Bob Dewey situation, I didn't want to really go too far overboard. And so uh, tomorrow's edition will will be a lot more like a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. In this sense, that uh, tomorrow I've got an update from the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. I will. I'm really looking forward to getting to that. And. Um, it, it so you know that you know we'll, we'll mix in a little bit more of the silly stuff that we do. It's just I'm not really in that mood right now. <laughs> after after what uh, I've been through, it's uh, you know I think it's fun and it's important, but uh, at the moment I'm um, I'm just not in that kind of space. Um, tomorrow on the program also uh, we're going to begin talking about what's called dominionism. And I'm going to further uh, kind of flesh out uh, Rick Warren's connection with uh, Dr. Laverne Adams. Now, I talked about this, I don't know how long ago now, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Who knows? They've all kind of blurred together to me and went in, into one big cosmic day. But uh, the point is, is that uh, I, on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, I basically pointed out the fact that uh, Dr. Rick Warren of Saddleback Church uh, wrote the uh, foreword to the uh, you know Dr. Laverne Adams's latest book on Driven by Destiny, and Dr. Laverne Adams. We played one of her sermons. We reviewed it here at the on the program, and and just pointed out the fact that th- this is not uh, guilt by association. This is guilt by endorsement. Why would Rick Warren promote Dr. Laverne Adams? Well, it, it, and I'm going to continue pounding on this question because. Uh, one of the people who Dr. Laverne Adams claims is a is a one of her mentors is a gal by the name of Dr. Cindy Trim. So on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to I'm going to begin playing a series of video segments uh, that uh, where where Dr. Cindy Trim uh, lays out some of her quote theology. And uh, boy, it's anything but theology. I, I mean, it's just flat out hucksterism, which then kind of then you know, makes me want to ask the question. Because here's the deal: Cindy Trim uh, wrote, uh, you know, she wrote the prologue uh, to uh, the book. So you got Rick Warren uh, to Dr. Laverne Adams's book. You got Rick Warren writing the uh, 
uh, the forward, and then the prologue is written by Cindy Trim. So you got Cindy Trim and uh, Rick Warren, you know, page next to each other, page to page, and um, so just kind of be prepared as as I flesh this out tomorrow. Um, you know that this is where we're going to go with this. And and I guess I, I can start to I, I want to start bringing you along with my thinking in this. Sometimes I do these think along programs and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, you know, how it doesn't make any sense what Rick Warren is doing. And then I then I began to see that it actually does make sense if you if you allow yourself to kind of go down a particular path. And uh, I'll kind of let you know, cue you in on where I'm going to go with this tomorrow on on fighting for the faith. Is that uh, Rick Warren promotes himself as a pastor to pastors? This is a this is a recurrent theme in Rick Warren's public speaking and how he describes himself. He describes himself as a pastor to pastors. Well, um, just correct me if I'm wrong. You know, and I could be wrong here, um, but isn't a pastor to pastors a bishop? Yeah, think about it for a second, okay? Now, in the Missouri Synod, we don't call them bishops, but in other denominations, they're called that, okay? There's a hierarchy, you know, so to speak. So uh, what happens is out on the front lines, out in the, in, you know, on the congregation, in the parish level, if you would, you have you have called and ordained pastors. They, they're in the office of pastor. And, uh, and, you know, to help serve along with them, you either have elders or deacons. You know, I'm not promoting a particular type of, uh, you know, church structure at this point. You know, you know, you got a presbyter and all that. There's different ways of kind of skinning this cat. And I know that there are, uh, that there's been very, um, uh, heated debate uh, to the point of church splits on the on the proper understanding of what would be you know a biblical uh, understanding of church governance, so to speak. You know how how are pastors organized? How are elders and deacons supposed to do their job and things of that nature? And I, I understand that there's a rich tradition of debate and uh, controversy on this topic, but that's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is this issue of if if I'm understanding the scriptures correctly. And if I'm understanding church history correctly, then a pastor of pastors has historically been called a bishop. Okay, so uh, uh, the Apostle John, uh, church history tells us that the Apostle John was the was the bishop in Ephesus. That he, you know, that he was the bishop. He was the he was the pastor to the pastors in and around the region of uh, of Ephesus. You know, this is historically true. And so and I mean, when we you study like different church controversies, you know, Augustine was the bishop of Hippo. Uh, you, you know, so the, 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 the office of bishop is a well-known position within the church. Well, in today's non-denominational way of thinking, um, which is kind of really silly if, 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 from my point of view, you got American evangelicals who you got this whole non-denominational thing supposedly to break away from, you know, uh, I don't know, these church structures or whatever. Um, But then we've got Rick Warren, who promotes himself as a pastor to pastors. Well, a pastor to a pastor is a bishop. A pastor of pastors is a bishop. In In the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, I think we have pastors, and then we've got, uh, you know, we've got district presidents and things like that. So I think 
you know, in our structure, the closest thing we have to a bishop is a is a district president, and then you know, and then above the district presidents, we would have uh, you know Matt Harrison, who's the president of the synod. So you you know, you could try to historically translate it and basically say, all right, maybe maybe we can make the case that Matt Matthew Harrison, who's the uh, uh, current president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, that that he's in a way kind of like the Archbishop of the uh, of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. You know, he's he's uh, you know above even the district presidents. So you, you see what I'm saying here. So here's the question I have: uh, If Rick Warren is you know, is constantly pa- putting himself out there as a pastor to pastors, doesn't that make him a bishop? Isn't it bishop? Rick Warren, couldn't we make the case that Rick Warren is the Archbishop of American evangelicalism or the Archbishop of seeker-drivenism? And so, and so, what happens is, is that you know, as I as I kind of look at what happened over the summer uh, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and uh, with the ousting of of Gerald Kieschnick and you know him being voted out of office, and it was a, it was a, a just down the down the line down the board repudiation of Gerald Kieschnick's church growth strategies. But I think there's a subtext to this. Okay, and the subtext is this: is that in one in one sense you can make the argument that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod over the summer when they elected Matthew Harrison. Uh, to be the president of the, of the synod, that they were in one sense rejecting and repudiating Rick Warren and Bill Hybels as bishops in the L- Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. There was a repudiation of that. And you're going, really? Is that how you see it? Yeah, actually it is. Because here's the deal. Rick Warren claims to be a pastor to pastors. And he's constantly promoting a slew of other pastors that he thinks that you, that you pastors out there need to be listening to. Men like Perry Noble, Pete Scazzaro, Mark Driscoll, and others. Yeah, and, and we got the upcoming Radicalis Conference uh, in uh, the spring of uh, 2011. By the way, have you all seen the, uh, the, uh, the roster for who the speakers are, who the pastor speakers are at the uh, 2011 Radicalis Conference? Good night. I mean, talk about a, a set of obscure people. I mean, if you were to think of heresy uh, of heretics in, in in as like you know people who were up for like the football draft or something like that, we're talking like second string uh, or in even third string heretics. I mean, people who I mean during the heresy draft they weren't even drafted until like the twenty second or twenty third round. I mean, it it, it just was like what anyway so you know Rick Warren as a pastor to pastors he's become a de facto bishop and so when i see Rick Warren and this is kind of coming full circle now um are y'all familiar with the term arrogate uh, a r r o g a t e it's to basically uh to take uh power or, or you know that you don't have it's you're it's you know to exalt yourself beyond uh, you know, what your office is even capable what your office by its very nature of its office is even even does you know it would be to give you an example of what arrogate means it would be like you know at your work let's say the uh the vp of marketing decided that he was going to you know do an end run around the guy who uh, your who who ba- balances the budget and and does all the accounting things yeah so so it would be your 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 chief uh, financial officer 
So let's say the vice president of marketing, what he does, he does an end run around the chief financial officer and he arrogates, he steals uh, uh, the the job responsibilities and power that normally would go with the CFO's uh, position, and he now assumes that himself. So he's he's now the acting chief financial officer and VP of marketing. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but that I mean that's what the idea of what arrogate means. I'm absolutely convinced that Rick Warren has arrogated to himself bishop powers within uh, Protestantism, and maybe you know. It, and the, the right way to look at what Rick Warren really is is to basically say he is a self-exalted, arrogating bishop and that there are pastors all over the world, especially in the, uh, in the United States and Canada, who look to him in such a way that they, they look to him in the way that people in the past would have looked to their bishop. So then we've got this, we've got this problem. Let me ask you the question. Is Rick Warren your pastor's bishop? Is Bill Hybels your pastor's bishop? Is Perry Noble your pastor's bishop? And you're going, well, that's a weird way to put it. Especially if, like, you're in the Southern Baptist Convention or, like, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod or, um, you know, the Presbyterian Church in America or, you know, you, you see where I'm going with this? If you have pastors, you have guys on the front line who are not really submitting to the authority structures of your denomination and have instead done an end run to where they look to Rick Warren for how to do the how to do church, then what they've done is is that they've gone outside of your denominational structure and they've made Rick Warren their bishop. When you look at it in these terms, it begins to make sense why Rick Warren would write the foreword to Dr. Laverne Adams' book. Why? Well, uh, Rick Warren, as an arrogating bishop, he doesn't desire to be a bishop of only pastors in any particular denomination. Rick Warren is pan-theological. The spectrum of people that he's brought under his bishop, Rick, that's not R-I-C-K, but you understand what I'm saying, uh, the, the, the spectrum of uh, pastors that he's, bought, he's brought under his bishop, Rick, go from, uh, I mean, we're talking like emergent liberal all the way to conservative Southern Baptist. And I, when, I, when I look at what Rick Warren does over and again as I kind of you know trace his spheres of influence and how he ever in, tries to increase his spheres of influence, it becomes clear to me that uh, Rick Warren has decided that um, he wants to expand his sphere of influence, wants to expand his bishopric uh, in, the, uh, in, in kind of the African-American uh, word faith type churches. And that's the reason why he, I, I, if I had to guess, I would say that's probably my best guess as to why Rick Warren wrote the foreword to Dr. Laverne Adams's book. So tomorrow, what we're going to do on the program, we're going to spend a little bit of time where we'll begin, this This will be one of many segments we do over the course of the next week or so. Uh, we're going to be listening to uh, Dr. Cindy Trim, who Laverne Adams uh, had write the uh, prologue to her book, 
um, and uh, who Dr. Laverne Adams claims is uh, one of her mentors. So we got Rick Warren promoting Laverne Adams' book, and Laverne Adams, what's her theology? Well, her theology, according to her, comes from Dr. Cindy Trim. And so what we got is this very interesting thing here, and uh, what we see is a power play by Rick Warren to arrogate uh, the and expand his bishopric to include under it uh, folks in the uh, African-American uh, word faith crowd. Because keep in mind, Rick Warren's bishopric is pan-theological. It's pan-doctrinal. It, 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 uh, it, it goes... It, covers the whole spectrum from liberal to conservative. And I think when you look at it in that light, when you look at what Rick Warren is doing in light of an expansion of his power and his influence, Rick Warren doesn't do what he does for money. I mean, this is that's obvious based upon the fact that uh, that uh, Rick Warren, you know, he reversed tithes and he's so proud to tell everybody that he reversed tithes. You know, I, I'm absolutely convinced Rick Warren doesn't do what he does for money. I think what he does, he does it for power. And what Rick Warren truly is, he's a bishop. He is an unelected, arrogating bishop. That's what he is. So I ask the question, is your, does your pastor view Rick Warren as his pastor? If your pastor views Rick Warren as his pastor, then your pastor has made Rick Warren his bishop. And this should get everybody nervous when you start thinking of it in these terms. So Rick Warren is an unelected, unimpeachable, unaccountable bishop in many denominations. You can't get rid of him. You can't you can't remove him from his office. You can't bring him up on false doctrine charges. You can't do any of that because his bishopric is basically is well he, he it it's not legitimate. He's arrogated this power to himself. He's stolen it. And when you think of it in those terms, you'd realize that you've got a huge huge Problem. So we'll talk about that more on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And then, you know, for for the balance here of uh, this hour, um, yeah, let me I, I, uh, let me do it this way. From the More Than Rubies blog, uh huh, yeah, More Than Rubies blog. That's uh, Courtney Cook, who is the uh, wife of Ken Cook. Ken Cook was the gentleman who. Um, uh, moderated my debate with uh, Doug Paget on the doctrine of hell. And, uh, Courtney Cook, uh, we had a conversation on the way to the airport uh, last Sunday, and uh, she she was complaining about how people in the church are, um, well, they keep using the word brokenness, and she thinks they're using it wrong. And I said, you know what? That sounds to me like a you know, a worthy blog post. I said, and if you write it and you do, you make your case strong enough, I might read it on the air. Well. She took me up on it. She wrote up this wonderful blog post, and it's calling for a moratorium on the word brokenness in the church. And so uh, Courtney Cook um, writes, she says, I'm no theological expert, and and I'm not even that great at memorizing Scripture. I'm a sinner like everybody else, but I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus' precious atoning blood shed on the cross for my sins. Look at that. She starts it off with the gospel. Anyway, she says, that being said, 
As I desire to grow closer to God, I'm constantly looking to be more and more biblical in my life, the things I think and say and do. On more than one occasion, that has led me to awareness of flaws in the modern church and the way we do things in in Christianity as a whole. And one of the things I've noticed is how we're moving toward more postmodern and emergent language in the churches. It's like we've become too afraid of offending people to call disobedience to God what it really is, sin. The popular word to use now is brokenness. And I just don't think it accurately portrays how devastating our transgressions are to a perfect and a holy God. Jesus is not a is not merely a cosmic Mr. Fix-It character who comes and tweaks some loose screws in our lives and makes us better. Jesus is God come in the flesh, condescended to manhood, crucified on a cross to blot out the stains we could never cleanse ourselves. We don't need tweaking. We need salvation. In language, words have meaning, and an accurate portrayal of those words makes all the difference in how we perceive what is being said. Oh, Courtney, well said. Let me read that sentence again. Listen to this carefully. In language, words have meaning, and an accurate portrayal of those words makes all the difference in how we perceive what is being said. If you do a word search of the Bible, you'll find that the term, quote, broken is most used in reference to having a broken or a contrite spirit, people being brokenhearted over sin, or in God breaking and punishing his enemies. We don't see sin portrayed as us being, quote, broken, but instead bluntly stated as a grave offense against God. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So why then do we substitute sin with brokenness? People have understood sin in that three-letter word, uh, in that three-letter word for thousands of years, but we somehow have decided that it just doesn't work for us anymore. That we know better than the inspired words from God. I wonder if it's more of an issue of the church being too afraid to boldly proclaim God's law and the gospel. When we do so properly, we cannot avoid the issue of sin. It must be addressed directly and explained so people understand what it means. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 26 state, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He... um, Uh, to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I believe substituting sin with brokenness does not allow for people to understand the full gravity 
of their transgression against law uh, against God. Now I would correct this. She says I she should say I believe that substituting brokenness uh, for the word sin does not allow for people to understand the full gravity of their transgression against God. That's correct. It is dishonest to only give people part of the picture and cowardly to care more about appeasing others. Uh, than the state of their souls for eternity. How can we properly repent without without knowing the full weight of our sins? How can we truly appreciate the extent of Jesus' sacrifice and the gift of, the for, of forgiveness and grace if we don't understand what we have been saved from? Great questions, Courtney. So I hereby call for a moratorium on the term broken and brokenness in our churches. I pray that pastors would be bold enough and love others enough to give them the full biblical picture, that they would desire their flocks to have meat and not only milk. And I pray that in our evangelism efforts, we would be completely honest and not gloss over the things that may be offensive and risk that the person may never understand and come to true repentance. I would like to clarify that I'm not saying that you can never use another term besides sin. The Bible uses other words as well. What I'm saying is that we should rely on the Scriptures first and to take to heart that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correcting and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. It is beneficial to expound on sin and to make known to people the law so that they may see what sin is what what sin truly is before they hear the good news of the gospel may we never be so arrogant as to think that we have found a new and more relevant way of doing things than God gave us in his word or as Charles Spurgeon once said if you really long to save men's souls you must tell them a great deal of disagreeable truth Courtney, fantastic article, and I completely agree with you. And uh, in fact, I'm going to uh, abide by the moratorium on the word brokenness in this sense. I will not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I do this, but I'm going to make sure that I don't. Uh, when I'm talking about sin, I'm not going to refer to it as brokenness. And in fact, sin, we're going to call it sin. We're going to call it, uh, you know, rebellion against God as we ought to, as the scriptures tell us to. And when we talk about brokenness on this program moving forward, and as we listen to sermons moving forward where the, uh, the pastor discusses sin in terms of brokenness, we're going to correct that pastor and say, no, we need to talk about sin as sin. And when we talk about brokenness, we need to talk about the sinner whose self-righteousness and heart have been broken by God's law so that they're repentant and contrite and ready to hear the gospel and the mercy and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus. Great job, Courtney. Great job. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we got two uh, short Lutheran sermons that we're going to listen to uh, in celebration of the fact that yesterday was Reformation Day. So you're not going to want to miss that. Both of them are, you're going to hear the gospel very clearly. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Got two Reformation Day sermons I'd like to share with you. On this All Saints Day, November 1st, 2010. Let's cue up the sermon review music. Good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, well, first one comes to us via St. Paul's Lutheran Church, Evansville, Indiana. That's right, I'm going with the Hoosier first. <clears throat> Reverend Walt Ullman presiding. The name of the sermon is The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. Now, as we dive into this sermon that uh, reminds us of the Reformation, Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis on the door there at the church in Wittenberg, 
keep this in mind. You're going to hear a lot of Lutheran history here. And it's not that this is Bible history, but it's the history of how the gospel has gone forth and gotten stalled and covered up by false doctrine and how God acted to restore it. The Reformation continues today. We must ever be vigilant against false doctrine, false gospels, weird religious schemes, and the ideas that burble up from within a human heart that are not the gospel, that are not, that is not sound biblical doctrine. And so as we listen to this history, many of you are not familiar with it. Keep this in mind. This is all pointing us back to the gospel that we're to proclaim. So without any further ado, let me kill the music here. Here is Reverend Walt Ullman, St. Paul's Lutheran Church, Evansville, Indiana, and his sermon entitled, Romans The Righteous chapter... Shall Live by Faith. It'll it's be based on Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 here and we go. 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Grace be you and peace from God our Father who loves us so much and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we uh, celebrate the festival of the Reformation and the central teaching of the Lutheran Reformation, indeed of the entire Christian church, namely that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone and his redeeming work as revealed in Scripture alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. We celebrate on this particular day, October the 31st, because it was on this day, October 31st, 1517, that that rather obscure Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed to the, the door of the castle church at Wittenberg his so-called 95 theses, topics for disputation. He hoped to have a debate with other scholars in Wittenberg concerning the statements which he had placed on the church door. Luther did this because he was reacting as a pastor at that point to what he saw as an abuse that was going on namely the sale of indulgences in the town of Wittenberg. Indulgences, which were documents or letters issued by the Pope and which purported, at least according to the salesman of indulgences, to provide for the forgiveness of sins for the purchaser and indeed the release of souls from the punishments of purgatory. When the coin in the coffer rings, the souls from purgatory spring, so said the salesman of indulgences. Luther was upset by this, and he wrote in his 32nd Theses, those who believe that they can be certain of salvation 
because they have letters of indulgence, will be eternally damned along with their teachers. This statement was not good for the sale of indulgences. And so there was a very strong reaction on the part of the church and the, sal the salesmen of indulgences, and a storm of a controversy ensued, which was to rock the church and indeed change the course of all of human history. Martin Luther was a most uh, remarkable individual. He, uh, he was a prolific uh, writer, preacher, teacher, linguist, translator of the Bible, musician, poet, uh, gifted in, in many areas. In 1883, on the 400th anniversary of his birth, scholars began to compile and edit the complete works of Luther. They began in 1883 on that great task. They completed their work. Actually, they didn't, but their, their successors completed that work in the year 2009. It took about 126 years to compile and edit the complete works of Luther, something like 80,000-plus pages. And all of it centered, really, in one theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Luther, in another one of his 95 theses, wrote, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. The Roman church put a lot of pressure on Luther and a lot of pressure on the Augustinian monks to... Uh, bring Luther into some sort of order. And so about a year, a little less than a year after the posting of the 95 Theses, Luther was invited to come to the beautiful little town of Heidelberg where he was to uh, defend his teaching. And uh, there in what were called the Heidelberg Disputations, he did that. And he wrote this, He is not righteous who does much, but he who believes much in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther did not come to this faith and to this understanding overnight. It took him a long time. It took him many years of struggle before he arrived at this point. Many years before this, he had begun his studies to be a lawyer. He was studying at the University of Erfurt. Uh, his father had been a peasant, but had been rising through what might be called the emerging middle class of Germany because his, his father had become a miner in copper mines and then had come to own several of the mines and also some of the smelting operations which processed the copper after it was mined. And so Luther's father, Hans Luther, was on the rise and he wanted something even better for his son. He hoped that his son would become a lawyer so that he could, he could rise to wealth and power and prominence and support old Hans in his old age. It seemed like a great idea. Luther uh, began his studies at the university and he was a good student, but he was always, uh, he was always a very serious student, a very sensitive student, and always somewhat obsessed by his sins, by his sense of guilt, by his fears. If uh, if he were alive today, we would probably put him on medication and try to find some extracurricular activities, get him involved in sports, and get his mind off those things. But uh, 
That was not the way they did things back then. And, uh, of course, had they done things that way, the Reformation, I guess, wouldn't have happened. But uh, Luther had all of these fears. And he talks about how he had always been afraid, even from childhood, how he had been afraid because of stories about witches and evil spirits that supposedly roamed the fields outside of Eisleben where he was born. He was most of all afraid of God because he viewed God as an angry tyrant who judged sinners. He says whenever he saw a picture of Jesus, he would be utterly terrified because he thought of Jesus as only a severe judge who could only condemn him for his sins. The church taught very clearly the doctrines of hell and purgatory, everlasting punishment in the flames of hell, and that God condemned sinners to hell, and Luther was terrified at those teachings. Now, of course, the church also taught that you could ask God for pardon, but Luther wondered how could a poor, wretched sinner ever possibly come into the presence of this holy God, this stern judge, this angry tyrant. Luther trembled in fear. His teachers, of course, told him that there was a way to get to God, that you could get to God through the saints who were already with God, and they might be willing to take your prayers, your intercessions up to the throne of God. However, you could not pray alone. You needed the church. You needed the help of the church. And even if the priest prayed for you, even then, you could not be sure of the forgiveness of your sins unless you also made satisfaction for your sins. And so the more gifts you gave to the church, the more you helped the poor, the more trips you made to Rome, the more pilgrimages that you undertook to Jerusalem, the more you denied yourself, the more you gave up pleasures, the more you could be sure of heaven. And of course, the best way, the safest way to do all of this would be simply to turn away from this world, sell all that you have, and enter into a monastery which is finally what Luther decided to do after the lightning bolt thing, you know. He decided to uh, sell all that he had. He gave away all of his precious books, which he treasured so much, except that he said later he didn't give up his copy of the Latin poet Virgil. He kept that, took it into the monastery. At any rate, he entered into the uh, monastery, and there he devoted himself to poverty, chastity, and obedience. He gave himself to the work of saving his soul. Later on, he said that if ever a monk could have been saved by his monkery, it would have been him, Martin Luther. He out-fasted, out-prayed, out-worked, and out-confessed all of his colleagues, all of his fellow monks. And yet, despite all of his efforts and all of his prayers, he could not find peace with God. He still was overwhelmed by a sense of his sin and his guilt and the everlasting punishment which surely awaited him.
He hated God. All of those thoughts may seem a little bit quaint, a little bit uh, odd to uh, 21st century Americans, for certainly we live in a very different world, and we have very different attitudes, by and large, in our culture. There are many who no longer even believe in the whole idea of hell or everlasting punishment. There are no longer who really worry about Satan or Satan's temptation on a daily basis. There are many who could not possibly imagine throwing an inkwell, as Luther did, at some supposed demon. It seems a little odd, a little medieval. And uh, when it comes to sin, there are many who are no longer terrified by the idea of sin. We rather ignore the idea of sin. We would rather talk about social ills or maladjustment or errors in judgment or victimhood or unhealthy environment or something like that. Certainly not sin that condemns. We're not all that concerned, perhaps, about the issues that bothered poor brother Martin. Of course, we do have some Stress. We do have some stress. We have job stress. We have financial stress. We have, we have other kinds of stress in our lives that we can't quite seem to get rid of. All of these time pressures, maybe stress about weight, all kinds of stresses, but really not sin. When it comes to sin and guilt, we try to ignore it, bury it, hope it'll go away if we ever do think about it. And yet, oddly enough, despite our best efforts, we still sin. We still sometimes have these underlying feelings of guilt. And ever so often, we even die. It's an odd thing. A recent study of women who had abortions found that the most serious experience of guilt, the most serious feelings of guilt, come not immediately after the event, but approximately nine years later. The guilt still there. The guilt still lurking. Now, I'm going to point something out. There's a reason why that guilt comes about nine years later, because what happens in a woman's life nine years later? She's already, she's got kids. And the full gravity of what she's done hits her. And what's the solution for that? It's the gospel. Sin and guilt. Luther struggled with sin and guilt. And despite all of his struggles, it would not go away. He prayed and confessed and prayed and confessed until finally his superiors got a little tired of hearing these long confessions. And they decided to pack him off to the new University of Wittenberg there to study theology and be a professor of uh, Bible and, and teach the scriptures there in this new University of Wittenberg. 
Luther went to Wittenberg, and he didn't really like the town of Wittenberg. He called it the litter box of Germany. He didn't particularly like being there. But since uh, there was very little to do in the little town of Wittenberg, and since the university did not have a football team, about all there was to do was to study the Bible, and that's what Luther did. He devoted himself to the study of the scriptures. And as he did that, finally, something dawned upon him which he'd never really clearly seen before, namely, grace, salvation as a gift, the forgiveness of sins which comes to people through Jesus Christ and him crucified. Luther came to this realization, especially as he studied the word righteousness in the epistle to the Romans. Luther read the epistle to the Romans over and over and over again. And at first he was put off by the word righteousness because when he initially studied the word righteousness, he thought it meant simply God is righteous, God is holy, God demands that we be righteous, we're not all that righteous, so God says... Go to hell. That can only be God's verdict. But as Luther continued to study, as he continued to pray over the book of Romans, he finally began to see that when Paul uses the word righteous or righteousness in the book of Romans, in the letter to the Romans, he is really thinking about something else and writing about something else. Namely, he is writing about the fact that God, the Heavenly Father, declares us to be righteous for the sake of Christ, his perfect life of love, his innocent suffering and death. God credits this righteousness of Christ to our bankrupt account. We are righteous, not on the basis of our works, our prayers, our struggles, or our efforts, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And thus, eternal life is a gift from God, freely given through Christ our Savior. And that gift is received simply by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works but through faith in Christ alone. Not by our spiritual struggles, but through faith in Christ alone. Not by making up for the bad things that we have done in the past and trying to weigh in the balance things so that we'll look pretty good, but rather by faith in Christ alone. The righteous shall live, not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is not some old, quaint, medieval doctrine. That is something which still speaks to our hearts today, something which still speaks to our very deepest needs. Jesus Christ comes to us today in his word, forgiving us all of our sins. Jesus Christ comes to us today in his body and blood, given and shed for us and for our salvation, he comes to us with the forgiveness of sins. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. 
the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Nice uh, reminder of uh, what was at the center of the Reformation. All right, the uh, next sermon that we're going to be listening to was preached uh, yesterday by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And uh, the gospel text that forms the basis for this sermon is found in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So if you have your Bible, uh, you might want to flip over there. I'll read it for you for uh, the sake of... uh, making sure we got the context here for this uh, sermon. Here we go. It's uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, "If If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, Well, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Here's Pastor Ron Hodel, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, on the Feast of the Reformation. Here we go. The great festival of tabernacles, or as it was also called, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths mirrored in part our Thanksgiving holiday. Just like our Thanksgiving holiday, it was celebrated at the end of the harvest season. The crops were in from the field, the, the, the harvest was over, the work was done, and the people could rejoice that for another year there would be food on the table. Unlike us, however, the Feast of Booths didn't last just one day, with the biggest shopping day of the Hanukkah season set to start the next day. No, the Feast of Booths lasted seven days. Seven days to rest. Seven days to relax. Seven days to remember how they got to this land of milk and honey, this land of Israel. Seven days to remember the Exodus. Seven days to remember how it was that God delivered them from Israel's, from Egypt's clutches. Seven days to live as they lived in the wilderness. Not in the comforts of their own homes, but in tents up on the roof or out in the front yard. For thus the Lord had commanded them, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israel shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. The most important focus of the Feast of Booths, however, was not on Thanksgiving. It was on how totally dependent Israel was on God. God's the reason why they were a people. God's the reason why the land of Canaan was their land. 
It wasn't due to their military might. It wasn't due to their agricultural skills. It was completely, 100%, the work of God for them. If the children of Israel could be credited with anything in their acquisition of the land, you could say all they added to God's work was their complaining along with a healthy dose of grumbling day after day. That's it. And so, God designed the Feast of Booths to remind His people that they were totally dependent upon Him. If there was any time in Israel's history that revealed their utter dependence on God, you'd have to say it was the time of their wilderness wandering. While the Israelites wandered the wilderness for those 40 years, they were completely dependent upon upon their Lord. In the desert, there was no food. In the desert, there was no water. In the desert, there were no stores in which to buy clothing and shoes. There was no protection from poisonous spiders, dangerous animals, deadly snakes, covetous enemies, or inclement weather. No GPS or Google Maps to guide them. There was nothing. And yet, they had everything they needed gifted to them by the very hand of God himself. Bread from heaven. Water from a rock. Shoes that never wore out. And guidance by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night and protection from man and beast. Now, I'm going to point something out here. I've got to pause. This, this is actually a, a sneaky, brilliant sermon. What he's doing is he's going into Israel's history in the desert, in the wilderness, and he's pulling us into that story and likening our Christian life to that wilderness experience. It's brilliant, and it's absolutely a great, great uh, picture here of the Christian life. Let's continue. And all this, not because of what they did, but in spite of what they did, God was faithful to his promises, faithful to his people. God rescued them. And he brought them into the land that he had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before them. And so during the Feast of Booths, the main focus was on remembering God's undeserved goodness toward them. And to rejoice and give thanks for his continuing provision. For he still cared for his people, and constantly provided them with all that they needed for this life and for faith. And you thought I was going to talk about the Reformation. Well, I will, and I am. What was true for the the people of the Old Testament is also true for the new Israel today. And by new Israel, I mean you, the people of God. It was the Reformation that once again brought to light our total dependence upon God. That we're saved in this wilderness of sin and death, not because of anything we've managed to do, but in spite of what we've managed to do. It's all completely work of God for us. For a while, the church forgot. And again, 
began to depend on what we can do, our good works, our worthiness. The Reformation called the church back to the Word of God and to the realization that everything comes to us by grace alone. The Reformation called the church back to the words of Scripture alone. The words of our Lord. The words our Lord gave to St. Paul, who told the Romans, for by works of the law, that is, by the things we do or don't do, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes what? A way to work yourself into the kingdom of God? No. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And one of the prophets that Paul was referring to here in Romans was the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jeremiah was saying, the old covenant and the old exodus from Egypt were going to be surpassed by something far greater. A new covenant, a new exodus would be one day led by God. And God would make a new covenant with his people that couldn't be broken. At this Feast of Booths, when all Israel was celebrating God's faithful goodness that he showed to them in the exodus, on the last day of this great feast, Jesus announces that the days Jeremiah prophesied of had arrived. Now, Jesus said, now God is establishing his new covenant. Now God in Christ Jesus is leading his new exodus. Now in him, in Jesus. In Jesus, God makes a covenant with us. In Jesus, we will be led into the promised land of heaven. In Jesus, we have all that we need. And what do we need most of? Healing? Yes. Prosperity? Yes. Safety? Yes. But most of all, what do we need? That God forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. And in Jesus, all that happens. Now, did Jesus say all of that in these few verses that we read in the gospel a little bit earlier? Not really. But in the context of everything that Jesus said at the Feast of Booths, and in the verses around our gospel, he says it. The Feast of Booths was to remind God's people that they had always been and always would be completely dependent upon upon God. In the wilderness wandering, what did they need? They needed food and they received manna. And in John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. The new is here. 
In the wilderness, they needed water. And they were given water from, of all sources, a rock. And in John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The new is here. In the wilderness, they needed guidance. And they were guided by a pillar of fire by night. And in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The new is here. In the wilderness, they needed protection. And in our gospel lesson for today, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The new is here. There's a new exodus happening in the love and the care and in the redemption of Christ Jesus our Lord. And just like in the first exodus, it's completely and solely the work of the Lord for us. And all this we're given again, not because of anything that we have done or do, but in spite of what we do, In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, even in spite of the grumbling with which we often repay God, in spite of our unworthiness, all this by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so in Him and by His hand, we do have everything we need for we have been freed from the grip of our enemies our enemies named sin and Satan and the curse of the law and even the grave itself. It was the Reformation that once again brought this news back to light in the church and to her people and even to her pastors who had once again been ensnared, led into bondage, not to Egypt, Not to Babylon, but by a supposed salvation which needed to be earned. Not by Christ Jesus, but by their keeping of the law. And not just the Ten Commandments law of God, but the rules and the regulations established by church and pope and council. Until the Holy Spirit of the triune God opened the truth of the gospel to Luther... Luther felt so much like he was bound, not free, wandering without guidance in in a wilderness, and stuck in the desert of his sin, feeling the attacks and the assaults of Satan on every side, knowing that no effort on his part was good enough or merited anything before before the eyes of God. He was hungry. He was thirsty for God's love, for God's forgiveness in a world and in a church that offered none of it. He felt like like a slave, the furthest thing from a son. How much like that is the world in which we live today? Or maybe even closer to home, maybe even you were, or even now are without anybody else knowing it. Maybe even now, walking in Luther's shoes. You have plenty of food and house and home, and yet you feel like an empty wilderness inside. 
You live in a community with thousands of people and hundreds of different worthy causes to divide your time between, and yet you feel so alone and empty and searching for meaning, and nothing you try truly satisfies. You live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, and yet you're scared to death about what's going to happen because of changes in the tax codes, the insurance laws, the elections, the economy, your job, or the business that you tried so hard to build, and you find yourself captive to your fears. You think of yourself as a self-sufficient, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstrap sort of person, and yet you realize how quickly you could be struck down by one wayward blood clot and become totally dependent on a whole host of other people for the rest of your life. You've struggled to control everything, your marriage, your kids, your future, everything, and you realize you control nothing at all. You've never gone hungry or thirsty a day in your life except when your doctor told you to fast before that cholesterol test. And yet you're hungry for something that this world's not giving you. And everything that catches your fancy, everything that promises you contentment just ends up taking more from you than it ever gives. And you realize your world is like an endless dry desert. But then into this world steps the one who would lead us in an exodus. For us fought the valiant one when the Son of God was born in a stable. When he preached in the wilderness sermons that afflicted the comfortable and comforted the afflicted. A friend of of tax collectors and sinners who was crucified on the cross and laid in a grave. Into this wilderness he came, right to where we are, and took our sin and our death as his very own and leads us on an exodus over to the other side, to the resurrection, to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Well, this Son of God is still coming into our wilderness today, rescuing us who have lost our way, rescuing us who are captive to fear and sin, rescuing us who are alone and searching and struggling. Just as he came to a struggling, sinful monk, so thirsty and alone, named Martin Luther, And as Jesus came to Luther through his word, Luther was set free. Free in the forgiveness of his sins. Free in the full assurance of salvation and eternal life. And free in the free food and drink that Jesus has come to give to all of his people. Luther at last received what he'd been longing for. And he ate and he drank deeply of the gifts of God, devouring our Lord's word and sacrament, rejoicing as if he were at the Feast of Booths himself, 
For the Son had set him free. And he was free, indeed. And he knew that he had received all of this, as he would later write in the small catechism, solely out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. He knew he was completely and utterly dependent upon his Savior for this exodus. And yet, though he was totally dependent, he knew that he was safe in the hands of his Christ. Just as Jesus came to Luther, he comes to you and me today in his strong word, in the washing of baptism, in his body and blood in communion. He comes to us here in his church where we have an oasis for our souls in the wilderness of sin and death. Here is a place of rest. Here is a place of forgiveness. Here is a place of refreshment. Here is where the Word, the Word made flesh, has promised to meet you, to rescue you, to live in you, and to set you free. And abiding in His Word, we are free. For we know the truth that sets us free. For we know the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's easy to take all of this for granted. I mean, we hear it so often in our church and we, we, we do know it so well. But therein lies the warning. So did Israel know it well. And so did the church know it well. And our enemies are strong and persistent and they want nothing less than for us to again depend on anything but Christ alone. And so it's good that we are here, just like Israel, having an annual festival to remember the wonderful good news of our salvation and our Savior, to remember and celebrate the undeserved goodness of our God who saves us and upon whom we are completely and utterly dependent, to remember and celebrate that all this He does solely out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in us. For Israel, it was the Feast of Booths. For us, the Reformation. But the news is the same. The rescue is the same. The forgiveness is the same. That in Christ, we are set free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Great stuff. Ah, never, ever get tired or weary of hearing that gospel for me. You know, it reminds me of um, when my daughters were a lot smaller than they are now. Back in the day when they would crawl up on my lap with a book in hand and ask me to read. Usually it was Good Night Moon or Green Eggs and Ham. And when I would get to the end of the book, both my daughters, they did the same thing. I would read to the end of the book 
And they would say, again? Read it again. Tell me the story again. It's the same thing. I've got this amazing story to tell you. And the story gets retold in each generation. And sometimes it's told in a memorable way, like it was at the time of the Reformation. But we are in one of those times right now when what is needed is for people to tell the story again with the same kind of clarity that Martin Luther told the story. Because there's so much distorting of the story going on in the church. The characters have been changed. The main thrust of the story has been altered and made politically correct and as a result of it has been made completely impotent. But let me tell you the story. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But God made you alive in Christ. That's right. God came into the world to save sinners of whom you and I are the worst, especially me. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. The Son has set us free, and we are free indeed because of what he has done. What a powerful and mighty and gracious and loving and kind Savior we have in Jesus Christ. For we are saved by his mighty work as a gift, not by works, not by our doing, but all by his doing. As a gracious and loving Father cares for his children, so our great God and Savior cares for us and invites us to pray to him, our Father who art in heaven. This is amazing good news. And the reality is, is that not only do you need to hear this daily, because I need to hear it daily, but your neighbor needs to hear it. Your friends at church need to hear it. People in your small group study need to hear it. Your friends struggling with their secret sins need to hear it. You struggling with your secret sins need to hear it. Christ died for you. I can think of no better news to tell you than that, especially as we remember what God has done in the Reformation. And we pray today that God would continue the work of the Reformation because it needs to be done today as well as what was done 500 years ago. Before we sign out, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. 
888-253-0038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins, every one of them. I mean that. Amen.